Welcome to Washcoff, the Car Wash Podcast. I'm your host, Rich DiPaolo, and joining me today is John Michael Tamboro, Managing Director of Car Wash Advisory. John Michael, thanks for taking some time to do this interview with me today. Yeah, thanks so much for having me, Rich. It's always a pleasure to be here. Yeah, I understand M&A activity is starting to pick up again in this car wash industry, so I know your time is valuable, and I certainly appreciate you taking a few minutes here to... Uh, to discuss today's topic, which is uh, which is purchase agreements, right? So, um, let's start off with the first obvious question: What is a purchase agreement? For sure, and I think it's a great question and something that at least I'm hoping that everyone can benefit from because um, I think we've all hopefully experienced that if you're in the car wash space or you know you had any sort of interaction doing a transaction before, it's something that's fundamental and something that I think. We believe, you know, everyone should understand, right? It shouldn't be uh, lawyer talk. It shouldn't be, you know, you have to hire someone to do it. You should at least be able to have the fundamentals, and hopefully, we can give a foundation today for for those individuals. Um, so, I guess to start off, really simply put, a purchase agreement um, it's effectively the primary legal document for uh, the sale of a business that really outlines the uh, the ownership of a company or an asset from from one party to another. So usually there's a buyer or seller or multiple parties involved. And this is what facilitates, you know, at least the initial part of the transaction. Um, there's two, I guess, two main ones that are worth kind of giving an overview on today. Um, the first, uh, which is less common usually for uh, larger corporations is what's called um, a share purchase agreement. Um, and this is where uh, effectively a seller is going to transfer their shares, uh, which is the ownership um, of this entity into the name of a buyer or a new party, right? So they're actually buying the shares, right? So um, an interesting point here is that when you're buying the shares, it means that uh, you're also inheriting any sort of existing profits, responsibilities, uh, liabilities, and most notably, probably the business risk um, when you're entering into the form of agreement, right? So something to keep in mind, um, I think that's a, you know probably a low probability and low percentage of of users would actually enter to this type of agreement, but um, that's sort of the the primary. And the second and and the most common really uh, in the car wash space is what's known as an asset purchase agreement uh, or an APA. Now, an APA is effectively when the uh, the individual or collection um, of individuals uh, basically they're selling the assets. And they're transferring these assets um, to the new buyer, right? So rather than you know the entire company being inherited as it is in a share purchase agreement, uh, in this case they're just buying the assets, right? Um, so you know I guess what's notable there is you know you might be wondering, well, what does this entail, right? Um, and really what it's facilitating is the transfer of things like um, obviously goodwill is the big one, uh, machinery. Um, any sort of, uh, I guess, creditors, debtors, um, all that sort of stuff. Um, you know, anything that's that's along those lines would be transferred over. And again, the goal here is is really to just inherit certain parts of the business as opposed to the entirety and everything inherently that comes along with that. Um, so I guess real real brief and short, because that that's probably a lot. Even though I tried to keep it as simple as possible, um, really the biggest difference is with a share purchase agreement. You're effectively selling uh, the shares, right? Whereas the APA is you're only selling select assets, right? And and the buyer and the seller can work together to pick and choose what it is. Um, and there's obviously benefits for both, right? So 
Um, they're both different transactions and they both have very different procedures, but those are the two most common ones that we see in the space today. You know, car wash operators are very good at running their businesses, right? They're they're good at washing cars, keeping customers satisfied and, and motivating and driving teamwork, right? So um, when they enter into an agreement or, or intend to sell their business, I'd imagine it's a bit of a whirlwind and, and there's a lot going on and a lot of moving parts. So is there one piece of advice that you advise sellers when reviewing uh, these purchase agreements? Yeah, I guess it's to your point. There's so many moving parts, uh, so many parties involved. It, it's really hard to narrow it down to one. Um, but I guess if I had to pick one piece of advice, um, not to find on a technicality, but I think it would be truthfully just having good representation. Um, now, what I mean by that is it's it's not just asking yourself objectively, you know, do I have a good lawyer or do I have an advisor that's done M&A before? Because the reality is there's many good lawyers out there and there's many good advisors out there that technically don't qualify as good representation. Um, and what I mean by that is is to me, and, and I always like to approach this from the standpoint of, you know, if I'm a business owner, what would I want to see, right? What is something that I would place value on? Because, you know, we see tons of transactions, you know, weekly, daily, and, and annually of different magnitudes you know, we've seen a lot of the kinks, right? And we've got down the rabbit hole and, and I'm hoping that, you know, this will, will ground it for people. Um, but effectively for me, it's there's three things that always jump out, right? So good representation to me means, uh, first of all, number one on the legal side is we want to have legal counsel that has done obviously m and before, right? So, and, and not just m and in general, but really in volume, but also in magnitude which is something that a lot of people overlook, right? Because, you know, if you have a lawyer that represents you and they've helped you acquire a single site, you know, even if they're acquiring one car wash a year over the last three years for you, yeah, they're, they've done M&A and they have experience, but that's also not the same experience as a lawyer who's done maybe a five-site acquisition in one year and then a three-site acquisition in another year um, or, or, you know, a, a double site, right? And so on and so forth, right? So there's two very different things, right? And the first thing that you would we need to ask yourself is, you know, what am I selling, right? And make sure that this representation has, and they've covered the gamut, right? So, you know, for a lawyer, it's having someone that's done, hopefully a transaction in the same realm as what you're hiring them to do, right? Because if they haven't, again, it doesn't mean they're a bad lawyer. It just means that they're probably not the most appropriate party. Um, and, and again, this is all extremely, extremely important because, you know, the lawyer is one of many people that are going to help you uh, hopefully maximize any sort of impact or value add, you know, after you start working through this process, right? So that's sort of the first level of good representation. Um, the second is, I guess, very, very similar, but it's not, it wouldn't be the legal side. This is actually on the M&A side, right? So as I'm sure you and, and many viewers know, I mean, there is a ton of representation, excuse me, so, you know, there's real estate firms that do this, there's uh, investment banks, there's business brokers, there's also individuals, right? Uh, we've come across, you know, probably more advisors, um, you know, than, than we would like, but it's the space, right? And it's also really, really challenging for the consumer to know, who do I choose, right? Um, and it's hard because I would say that different people define and place emphasis or even overemphasis on certain characteristics, um, but it really all comes down to what are you looking for, right? 
my needs as a business owner could be very different, Rich, than your needs as a business owner, right? And different advisors will, will probably appeal more to you than they do to me just for that simple reason, right? And for me, I always try again to take a step back objectively and say, you know, what what do I really need, right? What have I seen owners and operators, you know, truly need from me as their representative in the past, right? And it all comes down to trust above all else. And I always say, you know, don't go with me because you like me. Don't go with someone else because you like them. Go with the person that you trust the most. Because at the end of the day, you know, everyone is professionals. You know, there's a there's a big enough pond for everyone to play in. You have to go with someone and I would want to go with someone that I can trust above all else, right? Um, so so what does this mean? Because it's very vague, right? How is having a couple conversations with someone, how does that convey the level of trust, right? And it's, it's just so difficult, right? So for me, again, I always try and bring it back home and say, well, I want someone that has experience. I want them to bring a level of professionalism to the table so that I never have to question their motives, right? Um, I need to know that whoever my advisor is, they are solely motivated by this desire to help me achieve the best possible results, no matter what that is, right? Because they don't, you know, you don't always like what you find out or what you uncover. But at least if you know that you're, you have the best person behind you and that's helping you hopefully drive towards, you know, the end goal, and you know that they have no distractions, you know, there's no partnerships behind the scenes, there's no compensation from buyers. I mean, that is the only thing that can really add detriment, right? And a lot of times it's so hard to know. And that's why I say, you know, having someone that you can trust, trust me from a mental standpoint, it, it just extremely, you know, helps facilitate the process. Um, and it makes it a lot easier for everybody, right? So um, the advisor, again, solely represent you, your interests. Um, we need to know they're doing the best job possible. We need to know we can trust them. Um, and again, just like having a lawyer, right? They have to have experience in both the volume and the magnitude of what you're looking to achieve, right? Um, and I think it's it's really the same when you're choosing lawyers or you're, you're choosing your advisors is they both have to more or less have the same skill sets um, in order for it to be effect effective. Um, and now the last thing and the last real major component, and this is something that you know, I think is always uh, overlooked really is you've got to have an advisor and you have to have a lawyer that can actually work together, right? Because, you know, these two parties, they have to complement each other. Um, you know, you have to make sure that they're working together and they're playing on each other's strengths and there's an, you know, open line of communication because, you know, without it, you're, you're effectively playing with half a deck of cards, right? And, you know, there's a lot of value add for both parties. And I think, in my experience, you know, the, the best transactions where the client wins and we usually wins, you know, high head and shoulders above, you know, other transactions is when you have these two parties really working together, right? And you can lean on them and know that, you know, there's things that your advisor is not going to know, but your lawyer should be able to slot in, right? So the relationship to me really has to be, you know, it has to be symbiotic, right? You have to be working together for one goal. And I think, you know, to me having good representation, it really means having all three of those things in tandem. And, you know, it it's probably sounds like a lot listening to this and, and listening to me go through it, but the reality is it's it's pretty easy. And, and to me, it's common sense. And, and that's why I would say that is the bare minimum of, of what you need before you get, you know, get through the process. You know, I've talked to a lot of operators over the years, John Michael, and, I, and I've talked to, to folks who have actually sold their businesses and, and I can tell it's, it's personal for them, right? Like they understand the opportunity and 
and what it means to sell their business. But they really poured literally their blood, sweat, and tears in, in, into this business, and, and and it's personal to them, like I mentioned. So I'd imagine one yeah. thing that an advisor can do to earn that trust is to make sure they're transparent with the operator and, and open communication, as you mentioned, and really helping to, them to understand. So with this next question, I, I wanted to know uh, some of the common terms that you might see in, in a purchase agreement, right? What is the purpose of such terms as representations and, and warranties? Yeah, so that's a great one. Um, I love this question because for me, this is something that I think is the most overlooked item. Right. And lawyers all know about it. Advisors all know about it. But as a business owner, you've probably never dealt with this before. Right. And it's something that is always uh, ill intentionally pushed to the end. And people don't actually start to address it until they need to. And that's where problems arise. Right. So um, we cover this in a great deal. Um, Car Wash Advisory and myself, we wrote uh, what's called a definitive guide to the purchase agreement. Uh, and this can be found on our learning section. Um, on carwashadvisory.com. And we really outlined this because it's a lot more complicated than people think. Um, and there's this is where things can veer, right? If it's not addressed appropriately. So it's simply put, it's really the representation portion is uh, it's a statement of fact that's made by each party, the buyer and seller. And the warranties really are, you think of it as a promise regarding certain aspects of the transaction, right? So, you know, you're giving assurances you're giving promises um, and just taking a step, you know, away from the legal side of things. It, it's something that I'm sure everyone has done in a transaction before, no matter who it is, right? If you've bought a car wash, you're doing this probably without realizing it, right? It's as simple as something like, you know, hey, all my equipment works and it's in good working order, right? So, you know, if if you're willing to say that and to sell a business on those premises, then when the transaction closes and the buyer starts on day one, then you better be sure that it does what you say you're going to do, right? And there's a lot of times where this can sometimes there's discrepancies and, and times where you make a statement and it doesn't turn out to be the case, right? And it's not always with malicious intent. It just, it happens. It's it's the nature of things. But, you know, the, the whole reason for this is the assurances help to build trust between both parties, right? And it's really the basis for any any sort of legal recourse, right? And that way, if any statements or facts that one party is making to the other is proven to be untrue later on, then there's a foundation of how to handle it, right? Um, it is common for the seller to make significantly more uh, representations and warranties than the buyer, right? And and it, it kind of makes sense if you think about it, because ultimately, you know, you're selling a business. You know, I always tell our clients that I'll never know your business as well as you do, right? And I can sit here for months and I can ask you every question that I can think of, but the reality is, is you know, your boots on the ground, you've lived in this world for one, two, three, 10 years in some instances. It doesn't matter how much work I do or how good I am at this, I will never know it, right? And that's where, like you said earlier, you know, having that clear line of communication and making sure that, um, you know, both parties are 100% transparent. This isn't supposed to be a bad thing, right? You should never look at reps and warranties and say, oh, they're, they're trying to get me, right? The goal of this is really you want both parties to feel protected and comfortable that what everybody's saying is fair. And in the event that it's not, we have a path forward of how to remedy it. Um, so that is really where it comes up. But it, it is the number one most overlooked item in a purchase agreement um, that I would recommend getting in front of definitely uh, earlier on the better. 
All right, let's talk about a, another stage of, of the purchase agreement, and that's the due diligence period. Right? Yeah. So how important is the due diligence period, and what are some tips that you can offer to ensure that this portion of the process can be performed smoothly? Definitely. Uh, so the, the due diligence process is, is usually the most time-consuming and exhausting process, right? And I always tell people, this is where the real work gets done. Right. This is where, you know, all parties roll up their sleeves and you dig in. Right. Because it's, you know, it's, it's very easy to get that LOI, to get someone to commit to a price. Uh, but ultimately, you know, at that stage in the game and after, you know, a couple of weeks or maybe a month of review, there's no way any buyer can really understand everything to do with the business and to know what they're getting themselves into. Right. So this period where we do all the homework and we roll up our sleeves is, is what's called the due diligence process. Right. So, um, I guess at a high level, there's sort of an order of operations. And usually what we see happen is, um, so the LOI is received, there's a letter of intent in place, which basically says, you know, it outlines high level terms of the purchase agreement, right? Um, they're usually not binding. Um, sometimes they're negotiated later on for certain reasons, but it's really just a, we'll call it a skeleton purchase agreement that tells everyone, hey, we're we're willing to move forward in good faith. And these are sort of some of the things that we're agreeing to based on what we've seen today, right? Um, so once we have that outlined, really the due diligence process starts as soon as that LOI is signed, right? Whether you know it or not. Um, and the the thing that usually kickstarts due diligence is what's called the quality of earnings. Um, and this is where um, effectively the buyer is going to review your financial statements, your tax returns, uh, bank statements, and they're trying to ensure that all of the financials that you've proven to date basically triangulate, you know, all with the backup material and the back end of the business, right? So it's it's really the most important process because if you're telling someone a business is doing X dollars in revenue and X dollars of net income and X dollars of EBITDA. Well, then we need to make sure that it's actually reconcilable and we can prove out that number, right? Because it's very easy to say it's doing one thing, but if you dig into it and there's a, a large discrepancy in numbers, then there's a problem, right? Because the buyer isn't buying what they thought they were buying, right? So the goal in this process, it's sort of counterintuitive, but everybody thinks that it's it's negative, right? And people are trying to renege and renegotiate, but truthfully, you know, the goal of, of, you know, the quality of earnings is, isn't to challenge or negotiate any numbers. It's really to substantiate, right? And make sure that everything that's been reported is true and it's fair and there's no discrepancies, right? So, you know, we always tell owners that it's, think of it more as a check the box exercise as opposed to, uh, oh, let's see, you know, how creative we can get with things, right? So it's, it's very much a systematic process that it happens in, in really every industry, um, but really if a deal is going to fall apart, this is where it falls apart. Um, and, and, you know, more nine times out of 10, like this is where all any sort of problems or things that, you know, sometimes the advisor is not aware of, sometimes even the owners aren't aware of it. This is where, you know, you air out the dirty laundry, so to speak. Right. So, you know, the, the biggest thing here is that you want to make sure that, you know, anything that you think might be a problem down the road or any sort of nuanced situation about your operating structure or maybe your, you know, how you have like a, a prop co and an op co and how the revenue share and reported, anything that you think might be different or unique, it's really important to get out in front of it, right? 
Um, because if you wait too late, right, what ends up happening is you've spent, you know, we'll call it a month to get an LOI and then another three weeks to get to the point where they say, oh, if we knew the business was like this, like we never would have moved forward, we're pulling out, right? And again, buyers don't like pulling out of transactions as hard as it is for people to believe because it costs them money, right? Nobody likes to spend money, especially if they they want to buy something and they've been misled, right? So taking a step back and, and taking it from a buyer perspective, which people don't think is, people don't like wasting time, right? Yes, there are buyers that will play games, um, but if you have a true buyer with intent to purchase the business, um, you know, they want to move forward. So anything that comes up, you know, we always tell our clients, tell me at the beginning, right? It's a lot easier for me to firefight or for me to maybe, you know, make it hundred percent transparent the, the day we launch the process, because at least we know that by the time we get to this stage, there's not going to be any surprises, right? Um, and it saves everybody time and money, uh, because again, it's, like you said, I, I mean, it's exhausting, especially for owners, you know, going to bed every night, not knowing if, you know, someone's going to buy your business or they're not. I mean, you know, the last thing we need is for you to be worrying about secrets or things that, you know, you, you forgot to mention. And, and it's usually harmless, right? It, it's not with ill intent, but it happens. Um, so that's really the big chunk of due diligence. And that happens right at the beginning. Uh, again, probably one of the most important processes and it's where deals, if they are going to fall apart, that's where they'll fall apart. Um, from there, really how I would classify the remaining portion of due diligence, um, it's, it's I guess simply put, it's, it's where the lawyers really get involved, right? So that's where they're circulating the, the physical document of the purchase agreement. So it's usually, you know, I've seen one 60 to 120 pages. Um, and it's basically, that's where you build out the foundation of, of everything that's being involved, right? So once you're through quality of earnings, it's almost like everybody takes a breath of relief because it's like, okay, everything is good. And from there, really what you're doing is you're circulating the agreement um, and then you're reviewing any sort of um, documents about the business, right? So things like the corporate structure, maybe your employees, how you hire them, your training, um, even things as silly as like insurance policies or vendor contracts. Um, and it's really that portion of due diligence. Uh, it's, it's usually a lot smoother and there's less problems because all you're doing is communicating everything you've been doing to run your business. And there's less room for things to go astray, right? Because if a buyer doesn't like how you're doing things, you know, nine times out of 10, they're not married to it and they're just going to change it when they acquire you, right? But the quality of earnings is more, think of it as black and white, right? Either it's going to work and the numbers make sense for the investment thesis or it doesn't. Right. So once you get through that, the next part, you know, is it's usually equally as long, if not a bit longer, again, depending on, you know, how complicated the the structure of your company is and, and all these different layers. Um, but really, it's sort of the, the balance of what's left. Right. And again, it's super overwhelming and super daunting. And um, I guess really the most important thing is in this aspect of the business and diligence, you know, at least everyone always asks me, well, like, what are some tips? What are some ways that, you know, we can make this easier, right? Because if we've never done it before, like, how can we get prepared for it, right? So I think the first thing that it, it, again, it sounds extremely obvious, but it's something that people don't think of because rightfully so they've never had to is you want to make sure you're organized, right? You want to make sure that, you know, things like your financial statements, um, you know, even corporate documents or legal documents, um, you know, your tax stuff like your tax returns or even property taxes, 
you know, you'd be surprised the number of owners that, you know, if, if you don't need to keep this stuff, you know, you know, nice with a bow on it, you know, on, on the side of your desk, you're not going to do it, right? You have no need to uh, until you're planning to sell it. And it's usually, it's too late and it's a lot more work to go and dig up all this information uh, retroactively, right? So I think being organized is really important and it can save you a, a lot of aggravation and it's really easy to do and, and everyone can benefit from it, even if they're not looking to sell their business, just be organized and it helps you with all aspects of life, right? Um, and I think the second thing is that just knowing how many deals can fall apart through quality of earnings for simple miscommunication majority of the times, that's where your advisor needs to do their job, right? And that's where you need to make sure that there is that open line of communication because, you know, a lot of these problems, they can be solved early on, right? There's there's nothing that's going to be a, a poison pill where, you know, the deal isn't going to go through because of it. You know, it's just if you tell people too late, it's almost like, oh, they're trying to hide this, right? Or, oh, this is too much work now that we're in, right? We we, you know, we had this idea in our head of what we're buying. And now instead of buying an apple, we're buying an orange, right? And and sometimes that that's enough to do it, as silly as it sounds, right? So, you know, share the information, lean on your advisor, let them, you know, take care of it. Um, and that way, you know, this stuff is taken care of right at the beginning of the due diligence process or even prior to, as opposed to, you know, the last 30 days, right? And and that's why, you know, you'll you hear deals fall apart all the time, especially right at the finish line, you know. If I had a dollar for every time people said, you know, oh, we had, you know, the escrow opened and the money was just about to go into my account. And all of a sudden I feel like the buyer, you know, they ripped rip the rug out from under. Right. Well, chances are they they didn't. It's just it took them that long to find it. Right. So that's where you should be, again, communicating, sharing the information with an advisor. Um, but more importantly, this whole due diligence process is not something that the owner should be really dealing with. Right. This is something where, you know, if people wonder why do I get an advisor, truthfully, it's it's not to get an LOI, you know, not necessarily to negotiate because again, you know, surface level people can do that. Um, but ultimately the real difference is the actual execution of this process. Right. And this is where, you know, getting a due diligence list from someone and saying, Hey, we want to buy your business, but we need to see three hundred items on this Excel list and we need it in two weeks. Like Again, for someone who's never done it before, a lot of times it's just so overwhelming. And I've seen people get wrapped into this for six to eight months, right? And it's just, it, it mentally, it, it breaks you down. It doesn't matter who you are or that, right? And that's why, you know, the biggest value add that I see is, you know, I would say a good majority of the time, if you're getting a 200 question list, the reality is the buyer probably only needs like 60 of those items, right? So having someone that's done this and gone through the process, they can go through it and almost immediately say, need this, need this, don't need this, need this. And again, just the time saving alone for you not having to go through the aggravation, um, it, it's a huge, huge benefit. But um, hopefully that that covers a good amount of, of the process. And uh, it, for those that have done it before, it is a full-time job. It's ex extremely uh, exhausting to say the least. Well, let's put, our, let's put ourselves in the shoes of the listener out there either is on the fence about selling their business or maybe in the future this is an option for them yeah what, what is you know i'm listening here and i'm, I'm understanding obviously you're not going to sell your business overnight right like there's a process that and you have to go through it all so what is the timing of this whole process would you say sure so it's uh it's it's hard because it, it truthfully it varies on the business right um 
so I would say to keep it simple, assuming that you have an LOI in place, um, the entire process really of the, the quality of earnings that I mentioned, then the remaining due diligence item, along with any sort of negotiation, you know, signing the purchase agreement, um, you know, all sort of the, the, the meat of the transaction, I guess at a very high level, the average is anywhere from about 45 to 80 days, right? Now, again, that is truthfully dependent on the the complexity, uh, the corporate structure, and and really the number of sites involved, right? Um, so I guess to sort of, to take that into really, you know, I like to bifurcate it because there's really two different categories of people selling, um, you know, an example of, we'd call it a 40 to 50 day process. That's like the single site car wash owner, right? That's someone who has, you know, one location. It doesn't matter the if it's a self-serve or an express or whatever, because, you know, if you're selling it to an individual or if you're selling it to some type of strategic buyer, there's only so many things to look at. Right. So as long as you have someone that's that's on it and, and moving the process forward and you're, you're satisfying items shouldn't take you longer than that, because there's only so much to look at. Right. It, if it gets extended, it usually means that there's there's problems. Right. Um, and then I guess to take it one step further, you know, if you're looking at a process that's, you know, 75 to 80 days, that would be like a multi site package. Right. Lots of locations. Um, you know, but I guess the example that comes to mind is the Zach's car wash portfolio, right? We did that back in December, 19 locations, right? So as you can imagine, Rich, everything there that you need to diligence on a single car wash, you know, basically multiply that by 19, right? And it doesn't matter how organized you are, how clean your books are, you know, it doesn't matter how willing the buyer is, it just takes time, right? And you can only move so fast. There's only so many working hours in a day. So, you know, the biggest lift for either of these processes, if you do want to shorten the timeline, is having someone to quarterback and facilitate, right? And that is the job of, of an advisor, right? Is to be able to go in there, you know, lead the charge, push things forward, make sure that they're, you know, everybody's accountable, deadlines are met. And that's how you speed it up, right? Um, and I think there is something to be had about, you know, the more a due diligence process gets delayed and extended for whatever reason, there is almost inherent risk that's being added to the equation of things falling through, right? Um, and it's something that we've definitely, you know, there's a lot of data on this, but time and time again is you want to make it a clean process. You want to, you know, turn over all the info that's necessary, but you also want to get it done and moved on, right? And at some point you've got to, you know, you got to stop the bleeding. And there's, there's only so many things, like I said, that you really need to diligence to be comfortable enough to move forward with the acquisition. Yeah, and PCMD uh, in partnership with Car Wash Advisory actually helped break that news of Zach's, uh, Zach's Auto Wash uh, yes. in the January 2024 issue. Uh, so folks who are interested in, in reading about that story could certainly head over to uh, to carwash.com. And uh, I just had one more question for you, John Lightner. Mm -hmm. I certainly appreciate you taking some time today. Uh, you know, what, one idea that... a uh, that an operator or seller might have is, is they've become embedded in the communities that they serve. They know these communities so well. So maybe an idea would be, let me take some chips off the table. Let me, let me sell my car wash location or locations, and then I'll just open up another car wash in, in the same community. So how do non-competes work in the car wash industry? Yeah, that's a great question. And that's something that I, I think it's very different for car wash, the car wash industry, as opposed to any other industry. Um, so, you know, I've worked in, 
with retail goods, um, you know, manufacturing, consumer products, airlines. And I think every industry is, you know, I guess you could blanket it and say there is a criteria. But what's really interesting about the car wash space is that we know so much about the businesses and the drivers for, you know, good performing washes um, and, and sort of all the characteristics that go into a good site that, you know, the non-compete is something that, you know, I feel resoundingly comfortable with because I think we're at a we're at a place where we can do it in a fair way that protects both the buyer and the seller in a transaction, right? So I guess to take a step back for those that don't know, um, so the non-compete clause is basically, uh, it's a form of contractual provision and uh, effectively one party, which is usually the seller, they basically uh, agree to not engage, right? In certain competitive activities. Now, this is usually outlined over um, a specific period of time and within a specific geographic area, right? Um, and the geographic area is a lot more focused than people think, right? And in certain industries, there's arguments to be made where, you know, if you're not going to compete in an activity, it should be for the entire state, right? So, you know, if you're supplying, you know, some type of good and your customer base is the whole, you know, the whole East Coast, for example, well, you're going to have a lot more restrictive NDA as opposed to a car wash, because as you know, Rich, I mean, a lot of the data that that we use and that we see comes from you guys. And, you know, the one thing that always jumps out is I think it's unanimous that, you know, 90 to 95% of your customer base that comes to a car wash, they usually live in a, you know, we'll call it a five mile radius, right? And that's something that, you know, to me, just knowing those facts it should be very empowering to a seller because if you know that 95% of your customer base is in a five mile radius, well then why would you sign a non-compete for 30 miles? Like it just makes no sense, right? There's no need to restrict yourself to that extreme, right? And I know buyers, are, you know, they're going to hate me saying this. They always want the most protection, but there's being protective and then there's being excessive, right? And, and you know, the, the reality is, is it's usually settled somewhere in the middle, right? Um, so that's really with the geography. That's a really important point. Um, and then in terms of, you know, what else is usually layered in there, I guess the one thing that people don't think of, and sometimes it's layered into the non-compete and sometimes it's, you know, a separate document that's attached as part of the APA. Um, and that's what's called a non-solicit agreement, right? And, and that's to protect exactly what you mentioned, Rich, right? Like what's to stop me from opening a car wash, you know, 10 miles away and then hiring all my employees, right? Because I know they're fantastic. I know that they can get the work in that. So that's what we don't want. Um, so the non-solicit agreement is, it's essentially, it's another provision um, outlined in the agreement. And effectively what that does is it says, you can't actively solicit or seek out certain individuals, right? And usually it's it's restricted to that of employees or managers or people on payroll of, of the company that's being acquired, right? So. Again, both of these usually work in tandem. Uh, the goal of these, again, is to make sure really that the buyer is protected, right? And, you know, is there a benefit to the seller? Truthfully, there isn't. But, you know, the logic there is if I'm a buyer and I'm willing to pay you, a, you know, some type of premium to acquire your business, well, I need to make sure that you can't strip it for parts and put me out of business and then go and sell that business to someone else, you know, and so on and so forth, right? So, you know, how this usually takes shape in the car wash space, you know, simply put is, you know, there's usually a, you know, we'll call it a three to five mile radius, you know, bubbled around, you know, each of the sites and that's the restricted zone, right? And there's usually a term of anywhere from, 
you know, one to three years in that three to five mile radius where buyers will have to say, you know, we agreed to not operate, we're not going to compete, and we're not going to hire employees in that area. And it's it's what's right. It's it's what's fair to do. And that's what people, you know, it, it's standard, right? Those terms. Um, but it gets a bit more complicated when you have multiple locations, right? Um, you know, and even drawing back, you know, imagine you had 10 sites, right? And if you had 10 sites, you know, in and around, um, you know, Tampa, right? Tampa is a great market. But if, if you had 10 sites in Tampa, there is an argument to be made that, you know, you can't just have a three to five mile per radius per site because if someone's buying 10 locations, they're again, more, more likely than not paying an inherently higher premium due to the site count, which would then translate to them wanting to acquire a larger market, right? And if someone says, I want to buy the entire, you know, we'll call it market of Tampa, you know, that could be a 100, 200 mile radius from, you know, the, the midpoint of the washes, right? And again, that's something that it sounds extremely restricting, but again, it's not unreasonable, right? So the goal isn't, it's not like they're trying to protect you from doing things, it's really to protect buyers so that, you know, they're they're getting what they're paying for and they don't have to worry about you ever being a competitor. And, you know, when it expires, if you want to open up shop, then you're welcome to do so. But, you know, at that point, it shouldn't be as much of a concern because, you know, in that time period, that's where buyers can add their value to the business and grow the customer base and get a lot more comfortable. But um, again, really, really important term. Uh, I think something that I would say almost every single transaction that I've seen done, there is always some form of non-compete or non-solicit signed. Um, and again, it's always just making sure that, you know, it's something you know you need to sign, but you need to understand what's excessive versus what's reasonable. Um, and that way, you know that, you know, you, you don't want to open yourself to unnecessary exposure because if God forbid something happened and, you know, you needed to go back to work and you needed to earn a living or something, then you know, you don't have to move states just to be able to to get a job, right? And for a lot of car wash owners, they've never done anything else other than run a car wash, right? So it's very difficult to ask them to go to a new market with, you know, capital to do it again. So you just want to make sure you're protected on both ends. And it's something that is, is a reasonable ask for buyers. Even more of a reason to, to partner with a trusted advisory firm, because if you're selling your car washes, most likely your first and only time maybe you're ever going to go through this process yes. an advisory firm would know based on their experiences with selling other washes what's excessive uh, and whatnot so uh, another That's reason right. uh, to partner well certainly uh, john likely spent a lot of time with me today to go over uh, what is a purchasing purchasing agreement and uh, or a purchase agreement and i certainly appreciate uh your time today, uh, obviously, as you mentioned, another great resources our, our listeners uh, can look at is is on your website, carwashadvisory.com, where you've written about this very topic and, and certainly listeners and operators, interested sellers, uh, even buyers out there could go up and, and brush, uh, brush up their uh, knowledge of purchases agreements. And we'll include a link to that, uh, to that article in the, uh, in the summary of this uh, this podcast episode here. So thanks again for taking the time, John Michael. It was great to, My pleasure. Uh, to see you again. Yeah, thank you so much for, for having me.